Draycott Diaries and the Ella Caulfield story part two. This episode is a conversation piece between myself and Ella. We are both fairly new guide dog owners and still finding our way round, frankly, a minefield operating a dog in an ever-changing world. It's also an opportunity for us both to talk a little bit about our sight loss and our positivity, really, about going forward. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Well, I have this thing, I think, you know, with Jackie. Jackie is phenomenal. And for example, in London, I think I've said, you know, she lives on and off escalators and rush hours, sitting on the underground. I mean, she can be on the station where the train comes in sort of inches by her. She She's just extraordinary, but she hates cheddar. Uh-huh. <laughs> She finds cheddar too slow. And we just stop. And the other day, I was on a zebra crossing between the hairdresser's chops and where Nat West used to be. Just stopped in the middle of the zebra crossing. Would not budge. So I very quickly shouted to the woman the other side. I said, could you just shout treat at my guide dog? And magically, Jackie launched forward. Rio has been known to do things like that in the past. She can be a little bit sticky at curbs, so she'll refuse to cross the road, even if it is safe to cross. And yeah, she can she can go a bit slowly across roads, which can be very annoying and occasionally nerve wracking if I could hear something coming. I think roads are definitely a partnership because that's other thing sighted people always say to me. How does your guide dog know, you know, the road? It's just extraordinary. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure. It's a partnership. I mean, we use we use all our senses. So I have my hearing aids turned up. I have Jackie, just about everything. But it is a partnership. However, the other day I had an interesting thing because I thought she was being stubborn because I knew the road was clear. I couldn't hear anything coming and she just wouldn't move forward. So I thought she was actually just being bad tempered, having a bad guide dog day. And I was pushing her forward, going, come on, Jackie, come on, come on. Anyway, had we crossed, we would have been hit by a bicycle coming at God knows how many miles an hour. I couldn't hear it, you see, and she knew it was coming. So she did save my bacon. Bikes are a huge issue. In Oxford, lots of people get around on bikes. And yeah, you can't hear them. And very few of them have their bells ringing. So if I could ask bike riders to do anything, it would be ring their bells. They are a blind person's nightmare because they're always on the pavements. Or too close to them. I, I was going to say about the crossing the roads. I like to say to people that th- their impression of roads is like a three-year-old's. You can tell them that it's a bit dangerous to cross. And they'll remember that the first time. But come the second time, they might not. So you do need to keep reinforcing it. And you can't just let them take take the reins on when you're crossing the road you need to pay attention and be the responsible one yeah absolutely and i don't know if rio does it with you because i before you and i had our guide dogs they have had at least 15 months of training before they partner with us aren't they and then we go on for about another three months of training well, Rio had far more than me she had a previous owner before i did which unfortunately didn't work out in the long term so she was put back into the system and the guide dogs people thought that because I was going away to university, having a bit older, a calmer dog would be better rather than having to deal with the still slightly hyperactive puppy. So, yeah, they, they have a lot of training before they get trusted with a person. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it's funny, though, because some days I'm having a bad day and I think sometimes that goes down the harness, actually. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, I think. But I had an, an instance where, well, several instances where she will stop and look at me and go, no. 
we're not supposed to do it like that. She's giving me indications. They get confused if we're trying to do something that we shouldn't. And I'm always terrified of breaking her default system. But I know you and I the other day we were laughing and chatting and saying because of this lockdown, because obviously we're recording this during COVID, that we were worried how they would work in harness after they've been out of harness for so long, because obviously we work them every day in harness. Yes. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we had to go to the doctors the other day for a routine blood test. And I put the harness on and it was like she'd never taken it off. Uh-huh. Yes. In fact, I think she was really excited because they love it, don't they? You show them the harness and they go, oh, great, we're going out, we're working. They're used to it. They like it. They like the contact that they get with us, especially when we're working, because they know that we are totally focused on them and what they're doing. And and we are totally reliant on each other, aren't we? This is why I know we bang on about it, but they're not magic. They don't come to your door with a bow on their head going, hello, I'm your guide dog, ready to drive. I know where you want to go. All you have to do is hang on to the back of me and all will be well. It's so not like that. It's hard. I always say to people, having a guide dog, when you finish your training, because what people won't know is that we have to take an exam. We actually have to graduate. Yes. I was lucky enough to remember driving. And I know when I took my driving test that you didn't really start really knowing how to drive until the person on your left-hand side, I, your instructor, had left you. And I feel that as a guide dog owner, very similar. It's almost to the day where they leave you at the door and go, right, you graduated, you're on your own now. That so you really start to learn that work with your dog through your training you've always got somebody with you who will get you out of a situation if you do something slightly wrong but once you've graduated it's up to you and the dog and if you go wrong you've got to figure out what's gone wrong and you might be able to ask somebody who's nearby but there might not be anybody nearby and even if there is they might not have a clue what to do so you've got to be the one to take charge also, you don't want to ask people because the whole point of us having a guide dog is so that we don't have to ask. It's to make us independent. Yeah, because I think that for me, you know, they're having to, to ask for help. I mean, yeah, of course we have to. Of course we have to. Once you've got a dog, you get, oh, I don't need help. I don't need help. And I don't know you. I endlessly have people trying to drag me across the road when I don't want to go. And then if there are times when I'm unsure about crossing the road, nobody seems to be around to help me. So I think we're <laughs> rocking a hard place. But Ella, tell me, at Oxford, are there any other people that you know with sight loss in your college or around the area? I don't know anyone specifically. I know that there are a few other people with guide dogs over the whole university, but I haven't personally met any of them. I don't see myself needing to meet them. I've got enough very good friends as it is. It would be very interesting to meet them and see how their experience compares to mine. But I don't feel it's something that I need to do. I don't think being blind means you have to be in a club, does it? Exactly, no. We're just we're just people. You know, people go, oh, my friend's blind. You must come and meet them as if we're going, oh, because they're blind. We'll endlessly have things in common. No, I agree with you. I, I think it's very easy to be driven. I was just interested, really, whether, whether there were other people in the college at all. There's another assistance dog in the college, but I think that's more an emotional support dog. And Rio has met that dog. They get on tolerably well. They sniff each other and then ignore each other. It's kind of what I want them to do. <laughs> yeah, and anyway, they're giving each other emotional support by smelling each other's bottoms. Lots of people say hello to Rio before they say hello to me, but I've learned to accept it. How do you cope with that, though? Because you and I, I know, in our training, we're given enormous amounts of instructions by our trainers who could be quite strict. You mustn't do this with the dog. 
dog mustn't be the centre of attention. Don't let people stroke the dog. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's quite hard when you're in a college with lots of people and, and possibly you're one of the very few who've got no sight. That's going to garner a bit of attention, whether it's unwanted or helpful or not. So how do you kind of apply the guide dog rules it's about people basically doing the right behaviour around the guide dog? People have been very good in general. When I first started, so I had Freshers Week and lots of people were obviously interested, but I explained to them what the deal was. Personally, I'm fairly relaxed. And as long as Rio hasn't got the harness on, I'm fairly happy for people to come and say hello to her. I prefer it if they've said hello to me and asked, can I say hello to Rio? But I'm fairly relaxed about it. And people love her. They just want to say hello. For a lot of them, they might have dogs their own at home that they're missing. And so having another dog to just have a bit of stroke gives them a bit of comfort. So I'm very happy to provide that service. Because I was saying, this is the first time you've been away from home. I know you're 20 and you're a grown woman, but that's still, in my terms, very young. So it must be so nice having your best friend with you in the the shape of Rio. Because when we were at school, at boarding school, I was occasionally allowed to take my hamster. But if you told me that I'd be able to take my dog with me and that she could sleep in my room and she would be... I just think there's such comfort and how lucky are we that we the only time I find it quite tricky is because of course they come to the loo with us don't they they come in the cubicle which sometimes is quite tricky getting a big Labrador into a cubicle because we're not always lucky enough to find disabled toilets but I find when you're in a bank of loos and and you've been for a wee and and you come out of course your guide dog comes out before you do doesn't it and a friend who's been with me say that the surprise is an understatement of people are washing their hands in the sink as they see this big black dog emerging from a cubicle adjusting a harness <laughs> now that's good dog training yeah <laughs> yeah I, I haven't had to do that too often people will get surprised when the, a dog comes by them when it's been so quiet or if Rhea's been under the table and someone's come into the room and hasn't known she's there people are very surprised that she is there and will be like sometimes they'll have stepped on her tail and wondered what it is but she's very quiet she doesn't really mind so it can be a surprise when they see her yeah i know i love it and then and then poor things they're terribly over apologetic aren't they and then just to make it a little bit worse i also get people waving in front of my face going and going well you see you don't look blind and then they they wave in, in front of my face i don't quite know yeah, I don't know. What that means or how to take it. So I'm fairly gracious about it and go, oh, OK. But I also find it quite insulting to the non-sighted world that people do that. I think people are quite, I don't know, I'll get your feedback on this. I think sometimes people who don't understand sight loss have never experienced it in their family or themselves are a little bit nervous sometimes around non-sighted people. Would you pick that up on? Yes, they're uncertain. They don't know how to interact with us because I think the media doesn't necessarily give a good portrayal of the cross-section that sight loss can cover. You you get the image of somebody wearing dark glasses with a cane and not being able to do much independently, which in some cases will be true, but in a lot of cases is nowhere near the truth. And I, I can accept it. If you've been asked to guide somebody who's blind, it can be a bit of a nerve-wracking thing because it's not not natural you have to allow for an extra foot or two to to your side to ensure that you're not walking somebody into a lamppost they're not necessarily sure how loud to talk or where to talk to I've been told that one of my tutors will often not actually look at me when he's necessarily talking to me which I I'm not aware of but the other student in the tutorial is a little bit 
is a little bit kind of amused by it. And I think people, people are just uncertain. For a lot of the time, I'm not aware of it. So I can't, I can't say that it annoys me at all. I think where we differ is that you've been out into the world a lot more, whereas because of my age, so I haven't had as many of those experiences as you. So when I have, I'll, I'll let you know how I feel about them. We're obviously recording this on Skype because we can't be together because we're all in isolation because of COVID. But the word isolation, and I think it's true that people are kind of challenged with isolation at the moment. Whereas for somebody who has sight loss, isolation is something that we are quite comfortable with because we just had to be and we just had to get on with things. Therefore, when people say to me, oh, you know, I don't know about you, because obviously there's a tick list of things you should do at the moment. And one of them is clearly phone somebody who, in your words, unwell and their heads unwell. So I'm getting a lot of phone calls of people saying, oh, is this anything you need? And I'm thinking, well, I've been blind for, well, 10 years now. So thanks for the call. But actually, it's 10 years too late i'm pretty self-sufficient <laughs> but thanks anyway but we shouldn't knock it i know but, but it is weird that people do that but i was just sitting here and i was thinking you know it is interesting because i think we're i think we're really geared up for isolation i think we're really good with isolation i think as somebody's non-sighted we get really comfortable with our own company as you said we get incredibly good at diversionary tactics for thinking of everything except our sight loss Yes. I said that to a relative the other day who was some, unfortunately, she, she tried to use the I word, which, as you know, I hate, which is the inspirational word. I don't know what, what that means, really. I'm broken hearted for those who are losing loved ones and people who are losing their lives. There is no doubt about that. But the isolation side of it, I feel that we're fairly geared up for it, aren't we? Yes. When you've lost your sight, social interaction is difficult. If you're in a big social situation, it's difficult to break into a conversation because you don't know what's going on around you. Even getting out can be difficult. If you're not confident with a guide dog or with a cane, you find it difficult to get out from your house. So sometimes you're stuck inside on your own having to occupy yourself. So yeah, being isolated is something that we've got used to. For me, I'm happy with that. I'm fairly happy in my own company. I don't know about you. Having friends around me is nice, but it's nice to have time just to spend on my own. Obviously, I'm, I'm living with my family at the moment, so it's not like I'm completely on my own. But yeah, isolation is something that I, I can deal with. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. But let's talk about cheery things. Um, you won't be at Oxford forever, I'm sorry to tell you. You are going to be as big as a house by the time you finish, because clearly all you do is go to posh, posh halls of residence and eat too much. And Rio is going to stagger around. You're going to have to get a bigger harness for her. So, but seriously, do you have any thoughts about the future? Because you, um, I hate to say it, but you're a bright kid. You're not a kid anymore, you're 20. I know. But uh, actually, can I just ask a question quickly there which I meant to ask you before are you just a mature person by nature or do you think you've had to grow up quicker because of losing your sight perhaps a bit of both I think I have definitely always been quite a mature person but I think that's been impacted a lot from a very early age by again we come back to isolation by being somewhat isolated from my peers like I said earlier I wasn't able to play with my friends in the playground the same way because 
either I couldn't see where they were in the playground or I'd end up falling over and getting a bruised knee, a graze. So I, I wouldn't be able to play in the same way as they were. So from from probably an earlier age than many people, I spent more time with adults, with teachers. And so rather than being around more kids, I spent more time with adults and probably gained a bit more maturity that way. And then throughout school, rather than possibly playing outside with my peers or sitting and chatting with friends, I would sit more with teachers. And whether I'd be talking with teachers or just sitting in their vicinity reading or something, I wasn't always with my similarly aged peers. And so I think I just grew up a bit more quickly, perhaps. And then, yeah, definitely having lost my sight, I had to just get through it. I didn't want to stop and have an emotional breakdown. I just wanted to get on with my GCSEs and then my A-levels and just and just do things, just live my life. And I didn't want to I didn't want to slow down. And I'm not I'm not antisocial, but I'm I'm very happy in my own company. I like getting on with things rather than going out partying. (laughs) And I also think that I think as people with sight loss, we have a we have a choice. You know, I've never met a person with sight loss who feels sorry for themselves. So that's not even the issue. But I do think we have the choices of how how we use those re-navigation skills, which you've just talked about very clearly then. But if people ever want an indication of just literally changing the margins of your life there's two people recently i mean there's that amazing paralympian skier who goes down mountains head first 70 miles an hour yeah yes i know who you mean yes and then there's another really lovely lady who's been on itv's dancing on ice recently with a guide dog yes mm-hmm. you know you don't have to be that hero but I think it's a very clear depiction of what you were saying which is there is this great sense of people driving you towards help counseling all of those sort of things but actually the secret to dealing with these is simply diversion I mean I'm absolutely fine until I go and see a blooming eye doctor or have an MRI scan you know everyone's sucking their teeth going well I'm very sorry you know thinking I felt absolutely fine before I walked in here and now you have actually defined me yeah You've put a downer on it. <laughs> yeah, you've defined me by my diagnosis. And, and I know they have to do that. That's their job because they've got to, excuse the pun, keep an eye out for us. And if they can, they are trying to help. God bless them. But, yes, <laughs> you know, you're thinking, but my day was fine. I've got all these things going on. And, and having that diagnosis isn't going to change our day to day lives. For you, you've, you've still you've only got 10 percent at the moment. And losing that isn't going to change too much for you. It will make things a bit more difficult, but in the long term, you're still going to get on with life and you're still going to live it to the best of your ability. I absolutely will. And and also now I've got Jackie Dog and I've built in all this new technology, as you know, you know, with the podcast series and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, you, you know, I hate to say it, but actually, I don't think I've ever felt so happy, which is a which is a terrible thing to say in some ways, isn't it? And and, and it surprises me to say that we're both very optimistic people, I think. I, I think you're right. I think you're wrong. And and I think that, in my opinion, that's the only way you can be. I don't think looking on it with with a negative perspective is going to do do yourself any good because then you're not going to try and live your life to the best. You're not going to take the opportunities. You're not going to try new things, and that limits your life. And I don't think being being visually impaired should limit your life. You should do whatever you think you want to do, whatever you possibly can do, and 
if at first it doesn't seem like you can, there'll be ways of adapting a situation so that you can at least try. You might not succeed in the end, but no one can stop you from trying. That's true. And I think also I find quite difficult. And I think I think you and I've touched on this before. I think when you're dealing with it, like you and I are, it's kind of okay because we go, all right, here, you know, as you said, we're positive people. We've, this is the this is the hand we've dealt with. It's not life-threatening. We're just getting on with our lives. But I spend quite a lot of time wanting to support friends, you know, have difficulties in their lives and family members as well. But they feel guilty because they, they sort of look at you and go, but, but you've lost your sight, you know, how have you, why? I th- Do you know what I'm saying? It's sometimes quite difficult to support others and even family members and close friends because they almost feel that they're not deserving of your kindness or your concern for them because they feel because you've got an eye condition that you're in a worse place and I I I find that disempowering because I'm a really kind person and I want to be able to help I want to be able to support people but People are going, oh, but, you know, you've, you've got it so much worse than me. And I, I absolutely don't feel that. And I know, knowing you a little bit, you don't feel like that either, do you? I think people, people have got to remember that everyone will have something difficult to deal with. We've dealt with it to a greater or lesser extent, and we will continue dealing it without, throughout our lives. But at this moment, we want to support the people around us. And if at some unfortunate moment we both have something to do with it exactly at the same time, then maybe we won't be able to support you. But when somebody's offering support, then take it in whatever way that you deem suitable. Take the support because you're just going to hurt yourself and possibly the other person if you refuse it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Gosh, you know what? I found this really cathartic speaking to you, Ella. As we as we said at the beginning, you know, blind people are not in a club, but it is wonderful talking to somebody else. It's to share experiences, I think. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to be friends with every blind person, but we can share an experience. <laughs> yes, we can. No, exactly. I'm not going to be friends with every blind person either. Just the blind, just the blind people that come up to scratch. You've just been listening to Draycott Diaries. I am the voice as Tiggy Trathowan. I would like to thank Jeff Varney, my editor, for doing such a fantastic job on both these programmes. My brother Hugh Trathowan for arranging the music. And Ella and myself would like to thank our guide dogs, Jackie and Rio, for keeping us sane and always moving, well, most of the time in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs>